house, looked after all the kids and the mail worked. So I think in her, because she was so educated, she had that ability within her. She knew she had more in her than just being a wife and a mother, that she could go on and do these other things, you know, books and whatever else. That was Mrs Snook's daughter Sylvia talking about her mother, the prominent naturopath Dorothea Snook. Hi, I'm Greta Pools and this is Raw. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride. And she don't care. The year is 1965 and Dorothea Snook has just self-published her first book, a short booklet titled was man intended by nature to be a herbivorous animal or a carnivorous animal? Dorothea is aged 51 and her book contains a small portrait photograph of her. She is a stern-looking woman, slim, with short dark hair and a twitch of a smile on her face. Mrs Snook dedicates the book to her beloved children, Barbara, Isabel, Roy, Sylvia, Philip, Chris and Mari and writes, God bless them. May they live long and enjoy good health in the path of righteousness. The book includes her mother's and baby's publication and features black and white photos of her own children, photographed as toddlers. Under the caption of Mari, baby number seven, who Mrs Snook had at the age of 43, was a sentence explaining that Mari was reared on almond milk, along with raw vegetables and fruit juices, in combination with baked flour and soya bean flour porridge, as Mrs Snook had been unable to feed Mari herself. Baby number three, her eldest son Roy, was born five years after her illness and she calls him her first naturopathic baby. Now he has just turned 17 and gotten his driver's licence, she writes. In the caption of the photo of Mrs Snook's youngest son, Christopher, she comments, he is now 10 years old and has a perfect set of teeth. Her book is an impassioned plea to stop eating meat and dairy foods and outlines Mrs Snook's plant-based, vegan-inspired dietary philosophy. Two years later, in her popular 1983 booklet, What a Way to Go, Mrs Snook would frame her arguments against eating meat on more moral grounds, that is, meat is murder, farming factory is cruel and poisons meat, and that the great karmic sin of eating meat leads to cancer and mental disorders. However, in this 1965 publication, she focuses on putting forward the argument that it is God's will to eat a plant-based diet. As a woman of strong Christian faith, Mrs Snook believed God had led her to Alice Capone and the secret of healthy living had been revealed to her. In her book, she writes, I believe that this great dietary sin of meat-eating is the origination of all cancerous growths, I am astounded at the amount of people dying of this dreaded disease these days. This disease can be cured over a period of time by the patient going on a vegetable and fruit menu, completely eliminating all red meats. I have, for over the past 20 years, been carrying on an experiment in my own home on myself and my family of seven children. I cured myself of a diseased liver, arthritis and a few other ailments. It took me a few years, but I did it. In each piece of meat, there are living cells of blood 
and when meat is underdone, these enter the body and secrete themselves in some constipated organ and set up a growth which gradually grows over the years and by the time you find out that you've got it, it has got you. Practically all our nation is suffering with terrific constipation of the bowels. A pollution of meat could be shut up there for a week and a growth could form to eat this stink because the body doesn't want it and something must take care of it if it is not eliminated. Until we realise that cooked foods are dead foods and raw uncooked foods are alive and therefore life-giving, I don't think we are ever going to overcome our diseases of the body. So mothers and grandmothers, let us start here and now, for it is we who are the miserable offenders, educating and giving ourselves, our children and our husbands raw vegetables, raw fruits, whole grains, nuts, bananas, butter beans, lentils and split peas, and get back to the conditions of the Garden of Eden. Cancer is undoubtedly a carnivorous growth. It loves pork and steak and all forms of sausages, poloni, blood sausages, frankfurters and saveloys. It is a common cause of cysts and growth. I wonder when we are going to wake up. Christ was just so right when he said that the flesh was the most sinful part of us. The stomach craves for this and that. The drunk craves for his liquor. The smoker craves for his tobacco. The meat eater for his polony, sausages, bacon and steak. The tea drinker for his tea. And the cake and lolly eater for his sweets. And so it goes on. In spite of the warnings we get, we continue to swirl into our stomach the things that we know are not fit for human consumption, and then sickness strikes. Some of us get it, and some of us don't. Some of us are wiser, others are not. Remember what Jesus said on one occasion when he healed the sick, Go and sin no more, lest a worse fate befall you. In other words, Don't make the same mistake twice. And so it is, as I write to reveal to you, as it has been revealed to me, some of the ghastly mistakes we can make through ignorance. I admit to never having a university education, of being born of lowly birth and being guided by the divine spirit, but that puts me in the same category as Christ, for which I am proud. He said, I thank thee, my Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babies. Mrs Snook knew from first-hand experience that the diet worked for her and she had seen it work for others. She believed God laid out the rules for righteous living in the Bible, including diet, and it was a person's duty to follow them. But then, one day in 1965, not long after publishing her book, tragedy struck the Snook family. Ten-year-old Christopher Snook, Mrs Snook's youngest son, was involved in a bicycle accident. His younger sister, Mari, recalls Chris had ridden to the shop on his bike, The family home in Inverness Crescent, Mount Lawley, was at the bottom of a hill. As Chris returned from the shops, picking up pace as he rode down the hill, a neighbour's dog ran out into the road in front of him. Chris died that night at the hospital. The next day, Mrs Snook's son Roy suffered a horrific car accident and nearly died. Roy Snook, to this day, cannot recall anything about his car accident, but does recall the two months he spent in hospital. He had a fractured pelvis and a broken jaw on both sides. 
His jaws were wired together for six weeks. In the midst of arranging Chris's funeral and dealing with their grief, both parents kept a vigil at Roy's bedside. Every day, one or the other of his parents would come to visit him. In those dark hours, while struggling to cope with Chris's death, Mrs Snook may have taken some strength from the words she wrote as a teenager in the Greenham family history book. When referring to the death of her two oldest brothers in World War I, she wrote, No one can express how parents feel when the telegram comes, but in some way they learn to pick up the threads and carry on, hiding their grief, along with others in similar circumstances. When Chris died, this is precisely what Mrs Snook had to do. In one fell swoop, Mrs Snook was dealing with both the death of her youngest son and near death of her eldest, within 24 hours of each other. It was like a lightning strike to the core of her existence. Her daughter Sylvia recalls... That particular time when Chris died, that was huge for her because she denounced that there was a God that time, that, you know, that that could happen to her son, that God would allow that. How the tragedy of Chris's death and Mrs Snook's crisis of faith influenced her work as a healer is hard to say. Perhaps she threw herself even more into her healing work than she had done previously. Perhaps she was less afraid of the consequences, as no punishment compared to the loss of a child. Mrs Snook had spent the first part of her adult life raising her children, and now she was ready to dedicate the next part of her adult life to healing others. Roy Snook recalls it was following his father's retirement from his job as a carpenter and builder at Ellis's Furniture Factory in Claremont that Mrs Snook's career as a naturopath really began to take off. The family had moved into a large landmark house in the Perth suburb of Menorah, although it was often referred to as Mount Lawley. It was here in Inverness Crescent that Mrs Snook founded her Radiant Health Clinic. The family say Mrs Snook originally did not charge for her services. Rather, people left donation for her services. However, after banking these donations, she was contacted by the tax office and forced to start a business. Her pension was also cut off. It was at this address that my mother consulted Mrs Snook back in 1980. My mother recalls having to park at a different location as Mrs Snook experienced issues with her neighbours regarding clients parking in a street outside her home. The family believe their mother was targeted by various government authorities due to complaints made by those opposed to the nature of her work. After hearing of the various ongoing difficulties that she encountered, one of my questions to her children was, why did she keep going? They replied she felt it was her duty. God had revealed the true way of healthy living to her and she could not turn away someone who was suffering. She had once been given a death sentence from her doctors and knew the desperation that such a diagnosis brings. After researching Mrs Snook's life, it is clear to me that Mrs Snook felt her work as a natural healer was more than an occupation. It was her vocation, a calling if you like, something she felt very strongly about and had to pursue no matter what challenges she would come to face. So she kept going, and word of her successes spread. A steady stream of clients seeking her services made their way to her door. She developed a reputation for achieving success with cancer and arthritis patients in particular. Mrs Snook taught herself iridology, a popular technique among Australian naturopaths of that era. 
Although scientifically ridiculed, iridology involves analysing a person's health from the various markings in the iris of their eyes. Most of Mrs Snook's former clients claim she was highly skilled at iridology and able to detect broken bones from childhood and other ailments. When my mother consulted Mrs Snook, she told her that the golden ring in the irises around her pupils indicated she was on drugs. My mother emphatically refuted this, but then reflected that she regularly took a lot of codeine tablets to ease menstrual pain. Mrs Snook's other technique of analysing a person's health was to measure their pH, or alkalinity levels, through a saliva or urine sample. These two techniques were coupled with a consultation that was recorded onto a four-page chart. My mother still has her chart. Mrs Snook's daughter Sylvia believes the education Mrs Snook received at Methodist Ladies College, one of Perth's top girls' schools, and her training under Alice Caporn in naturopathy, gave her confidence in her own abilities. I just feel she was uh, quite an intuitive sort of person. I think with a lot of people she saw in that, some of the uh, way things went was quite intuitive. You have the knowledge to see. When you have the knowledge, if you get that intuition, you know what it is, you can do something with it. The following case study Mrs Snook published in her 1983 What A Way To Go book provides just one example of how Mrs Snook's home was open to anyone who sought her help. Titled The Case History of a Cancer Sufferer, it reads, On Wednesday, August 4th, 1971, my doorbell rang. It was a husband and wife who were greatly disturbed. She had been sent home to die of cancer. Following a hysterectomy, the disease had broken out elsewhere on the outside of the bowel. At the time, she weighed 9 stone 1 pound, 58 kilos. I took a urine and salivary test and found them both 100% acid. This has been my experience with all cancer patients who have visited me. With daily massage and a raw vegetable and fruit menu, the following progress was made. One month later, her urine test was alkaline. Salivary test alkaline and flowing freely. Burning sensation going. Weight 8 stone 4 pounds. The following week she gained 1 pound. Some enemas were used in the early period, but when the bowel was cleansed and only pure, unadulterated foods were taken, all enemas were stopped as they were very weakening. Almonds were the only source of protein used. The starches were bananas and corn and the cob fresh and raw. This particular client tried different raw food menus and was monitored for seven months by Mrs Snook. I do not claim here that Mrs Snook's diets will cure cancer. I am simply telling her story. And a key part of that story is the work she did with cancer sufferers and the reputation she developed from this. Even newspapers wrote of her performing miracles. The medical establishment, and with good reason, tends to not advocate the idea that a diet can cure cancer. People who eat exceedingly good diets still get cancer. Many factors unique to the individual come into play, such as genetics, lifestyle, age and environment. Apart from general agreement on the recommendations of eating a whole food plant-based diet, there is no agreement on any one diet that we should all be eating. Should an advanced ancient culture such as the Chinese be eating a Mediterranean diet? Diet is a complex, intimate part of a person's daily life. Many, many factors come into play. 
The most common argument against prescribing diets to improve or reverse some cancers is that there is no proper scientific evidence to support such claims. Part of the problem here is that there is no commercial incentive to pursue the trials that would constitute this type of evidence. Pharmaceutical companies cannot afford to conduct expensive trials that cost hundreds of millions of dollars and must be conducted over a number of years to monitor reoccurrence of the disease and then be replicated in different population groups in order to prove the efficacy of a diet that anyone could get themselves at the local supermarket. That said, there is solid data to suggest that in many cases, diet and lifestyle can play a major role in preventing or managing a range of diseases, including autoimmune conditions and cancer. Vegan whole food plant-based advocate Dr Michael Grieger reviewed the 15 leading causes of death in the United States for 2012 and argues that a plant-based diet could help prevent almost all the diseases that cause these deaths and reverse up to half of them. However, during the 1970s and 80s in Perth, Western Australia, when Mrs Snook was at her peak as a plant-based nutritional healer, there was very little support for such views. Still, her phone would ring in the middle of the night with callers from America and later, after her husband Leslie died in 1982 and she moved to a picturesque farm in Northam, people from around the globe would visit her there seeking her advice. And even today, I am contacted from people in America and Canada as well as in Australia wanting copies of Mrs Snook's diets. Mrs Snook's high profile as a nature cure healer coincided with a resurgence in the popularity of naturopathy during the 1970s in the United States, Canada and Australia. But despite this, or perhaps because of, naturopathy's growing popularity, the divide between medical and alternative health practitioners remained as sharp as ever. From what I can see, little has changed in this respect since 1901 when Benedict Lust founded the naturopathy profession. Then, as now, it is illegal for anyone other than a registered doctor to diagnose, prescribe, treat or charge a fee for services normally performed by a doctor. This left naturopaths in a grey area. Faced with the threat of deregistration or legal action, Naturopaths were wary of being seen to act as a primary health care providers for patients. They adopted terminologies such as clients instead of patients and described their services as a guide rather than diagnosis. But Mrs Snook was not one for semantics. She had a black and white view of the world and was outspoken about the things she believed in. Thus she became a focus of attention by the West Australian branch of the Australian Medical Association, or AMA, in their ongoing fight against alternative therapies. To understand the long history of antipathy between medicine and natural healing therapies, it is instructive to see how a powerful body like the American AMA mobilised against the profession of chiropractic. In 1962, the AMA's Iowa Medical Society developed a document known as the Iowa Plan, which included a section entitled What Medicine Should Do About the Chiropractic Menace. A program of containment was recommended, which included making complaints against chiropractors and voicing opposition to any recognition of their role in health insurance or workers' compensation. In 1966, the AMA adopted a resolution branding chiropractic as an unscientific cult. In a federal district court ruling in 1987 known as the Wilkes case, a federal court judge ruled that the AMA illegally conspired against the chiropractic profession by seeking to create a Western medicine healthcare monopoly. 
The judge found the AMA was guilty of the systematic defamation of naturopathic, chiropractic and osteopathic physicians, publishing and distributing propaganda designed to ruin reputations, forcing other doctors to refuse any collaboration with naturopathic, chiropractic and osteopathic physicians in the co-management of patients, and denying hospital access to naturopathic, chiropractic and osteopathic physicians. The conspiracy theorists would have it that the medical profession merely functions as a dispensary for Big Pharma, some of the most profitable and powerful industries on the planet. This is one of the extremes of the alternative therapies debate, with a very angry elderly doctor that I spoke to early on in my research who warned me that Mrs Snook's diet killed people being at the other extreme. An informative feature article titled Natural Foods, Diet, Eyeballs and Hope, written by Perth journalist Norman Aisbert, which was published in the state's major newspaper, The West Australian, in 1978, provides some insight into the fraught relationship between naturopaths and their medical profession and highlights Mrs Snook's prominent public profile. In the article, Mr Aisbert attempts to speak to some naturopaths about their work and found them insecure and guarded. Due to the risk of being seen to act as doctors, they were wary of speaking to a journalist, but not so Mrs Snook. Unlike a number of her colleagues, the state's best-known naturopathic dietitian, Mrs Dorothea Snook, 61, was eager to talk about her work, Mr Aisbert writes. A practising naturopath for the past 25 years in Perth, the past nine in a grand old nine-bedroom residence in Inverness Crescent, Mount Lawley, Mrs Snook has never placed an advertisement to tell the public what she is doing, yet she has never been out of demand. An endless stream of people find their way to her doorbell. Some are sick and some have been told they are terminally ill. I don't give life and I don't take it, she says. That's God's job. All I do is instruct people on the correct eating habits and let nature do the work. If you give nature the tools, it can rebuild the house. Mrs Snook uses iridology and she always marvels at its accuracy. She believes that any illness can be treated by a properly administered diet of raw fruit or vegetables. She says she is prepared to go before any medical panel to explain her methods. She believes that doctors should work with naturopaths and to this end suggests to patients that they report back to their doctor to see how they have progressed under her guidance with a natural food diet. The issue of non-medical practitioners and non-scientists making claims about diet continues to be a fraught one. This is despite the fact that most doctors have little training in nutrition. And in the last five to ten years, the science of the gut microbiome has turned many of our understandings of how the body functions on its head. We also live in an era of the internet and digital transformation. Information is at our fingertips. Here's Stephen Myers, a professor in natural, complementary and integrative medicine at Southern Cross University and a qualified naturopath and medical doctor. One of the things about the internet is the fact that knowledge is now widely available. You know, medicine used to be a secret fraternity that had a specialised language that only doctors could talk. And now all of that knowledge is actually available to people who have a computer and can actually use a search engine. We're in a sense entering a completely new knowledge age where while there may be knowledge experts, we're not now dealing with hidden bodies of knowledge that only experts have access to. Quite often, modern clinicians are faced with 
patients that actually have more knowledge of their condition than they, the health provider, does. Now, the health provider quite often will have more nuanced understanding of their condition and much more detailed understanding of its pathophysiology and its implications for health and wellness. But we have some exceedingly well-read people who want to know what's happening in their bodies. All of those things to contribute to a greater degree of interest in trial of general utilisation and adoption of the whole sort of gamut of natural medicines. The concept of being a consumer and, you know, the idea of caveat emptor, buyer beware, we probably need to actually Latinize reader beware. Everything you read needs to actually be considered in the light other thing you read. One of the, I think, exceedingly critical and important concepts in the evidence-based medicine movement is this concept of the totality of evidence. One of the things that the totality of the evidence talks to is the idea that you can't take one piece of information in isolation and believe it's true until you've taken a look at all the other pieces of information pertaining to the same thing. And when you look at all of the information that's pertaining to that thing, you then have the totality of the evidence. One of the things that's actually interesting is that modern practitioners are actually dealing with much more complex patients than I probably did when I first went into clinical practice 30 odd years ago, where I'd be dealing with relatively simple issues, but now people can present with very chronic conditions. And I think that that's been a significant change is that there's a greater understanding of the fact that there are alternatives available for people and they seek natural therapists, whether it be a naturopath or somebody who practiced Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine, to look at a different systems approach to ways of uh, improving their health. The principal object of naturopathy, according to its founder, Benedict Lust, is to re-establish the union of man's body, brain, heart and all bodily functions with nature. Yet such a definition could be applied to any number of treatments and therapies. There is a lot of quackery in naturopathy, it's undeniable, writes Australian naturopath and researcher Dr John Wardle, who points out that this is the case with any unregulated profession. The real problem is training, Dr Wardle says. You could hang up a shingle as a naturopath and begin seeing patients tomorrow. However, the conundrum is that while the AMA decries naturopathy for being unregulated, it also opposes regulation of the profession, arguing that such a process would provide validity to a profession that in their view should have no legitimacy. But the public are voting with their feet. It is estimated one in ten Australians use a naturopath, One-third of the patients who see naturopaths use them as primary care providers. Dr Karen Phelps, recently elected to federal parliament in Australia and a former president of the AMA, is an advocate of an integrative model of medicine and complementary therapies. She estimates that up to 80% of cancer patients use alternative therapies and defines the various reasons for this as being a patient's sense of helplessness in the face of a cancer diagnosis, their state of distress, a lack of trust in their doctor, or a feeling that their needs are not being met by conventional medicine. 
it would seem logical that the two professions integrate to offer the best for patient care. However, there's still an incredible amount of antipathy from the medical establishment to naturopathy and other nature cure therapies. But Stephen Myers is hopeful things are changing. There's still probably some people in medicine that would actually say that diet's got nothing to do with disease, while we actually know that it probably is the cause of 80 to 85% of all diseases and probably the most significant contributor to um, chronic disease. But for a long period of time, medicine basically denied the things that naturopaths were talking about. Young doctors are very well aware that medicine doesn't actually have the answer to chronic disease. They're looking to other areas to be able to enhance their skills, such as nutritional medicine and lifestyle medicine. There are some older doctors who consider it their mission to try and actually close down as much of the field of complementary medicine as they possibly can, which I find amazing. It's very hard to point to a body a year, one person dying from complementary medicine a year. I don't think we've actually even reached that statistic. Yet we know that 40,000 people die every year in Australia from iatrogenic or doctor-caused conditions just in our hospital system alone. And I would think that these medical academics would be doing a lot more for public health if they spent their time putting their own house in order rather than trying to close down natural medicine. The reasons that I practice natural medicine and I'm a professor in natural medicine is that I believe that fundamentally it makes a lot more common sense especially in chronic disease, to start gently rather than with high-impact, high-side-effect type approaches to therapy. I also believe that people who, through poor lifestyle, make themselves ill need to actually fundamentally change their lifestyle as opposed to taking just the magic bullets. I think we give people cures to conditions that make them rely on the fact that they don't have to do anything to maintain their own health and well-being, which is completely far from the facts because what happens to those people is that they just tend to railroad down a track of poor diet and lifestyle and end up with more and more and more chronic diseases. Despite the percentage of the population using them, in Australia, naturopathy remains a semi-legitimised medical system and does not currently possess statutory registration in any political state or territory. A national register was established in 2010 by the Australian Register of Naturopaths and Herbalists, which may prove a step towards future regulation. Currently, police, the courts or a health review board may investigate the activities of a complementary therapist in the case of alleged misconduct. And this is what happened to Mrs Snook following the death of her brother Stanley at her home in November 1989. Before I leave you today, I would like to read a letter of testimonial written by one of Mrs Snook's former clients and provided to her at a time when she was facing some strife, for what I am uncertain. As far as medical science is concerned, individual accounts of health recovery, like the melanoma survivor Dale Highway in episode one, or the one I'm about to read, must be ignored as they have not been studied under controlled trial conditions. A whole range of variables may come into play. 
and it is true that I do not know what happened to this gentleman, but this letter would seem to indicate that he enjoyed some quality of life after trying Mrs Snook's diet. A testimonial by Charles Harris, dated November 13, 1979. To whom it may concern... After appearing on the Channel 9 Terry Willisey show, many have asked me what it was about. One word answers this, cancer. In December 1978, several lumps came up in my neck. My doctor sent me to a surgeon who wanted to put me into hospital there and then, but I put him off until after Christmas. The surgeon removed the biggest lump and I had a scan x-ray and marrowbone test. A few days later, I went to get the results. What a shock then. I was diagnosed with cancer in advanced stages, mainly in the lymph glands. The doctor advised hospital for five days each fortnight with dozens of drug tablets. He said radiation treatment was out of the question. He gave me only a 50-50 chance. It was like a sentence of death passed to me. I agreed to his treatment and he booked me into hospital for the following week. There was no time to be lost. I staggered out into the street in a daze, caught the bus into town to go home. Then suddenly I realised I had been tricked into a living or dying death. I phoned the doctor back and caught him just as he was leaving. I said I just couldn't go through with it. He was sympathetic but could offer no other advice. After a restless night, I knew I didn't want to die. My cousin phoned and suggested we went with them to Dunsborough, where another cousin lived who had cancer 20 years ago. What a difference that car ride made. A ray of hope to be alive again, to live again. The cousin at Dunsborough gave me courage and hope. On the way home, we called at a friend's place in Harvey. There we heard of Mrs Dorothea Snook, who had done wonders for these friends. Next day, I phoned Mrs Snook and made an appointment. After a very pleasant consultation, my hopes were sky high and I knew I wasn't going to die after all. Mrs Snook put me on a very strict fruit diet with vegetables. Celery, carrot, lettuce and cabbage leaves juice, just put through a juice extractor. I was lucky that water and rock melons were in season, cheap, and I enjoyed them immensely. I was not allowed tea, coffee or beverages, and strangely enough, although I had been a keen tea drinker, I never missed them. I saw Mrs Snook every two weeks and my diet was altered slightly then a visit every month, and after six months I was allowed a heavenly vegetable salad comprising raw, of course, beetroot, turnip, radishes, pumpkin, carrot, tomato, zucchini, cucumber, garlic, capsicum, mint, parsley, celery, cauliflower, cabbage, lettuce, silver beet, spinach, etc., varying for different meals. I lost about one stone, or 14 pounds, which is usual in the cleansing, which I managed easily after the first once or twice. My urine, which was tested each consultation, changed from acid to alkaline. After 11 months, I saw the doctor, who confessed he was surprised I was still alive, which he couldn't have guaranteed under his treatment. Recently, Mrs Snook discharged me and said I could be my own doctor. My present breakfast consists of pineapple, soaked wheat meal, dates and almonds and apricot kernels, followed by bananas. I used to get very hungry, but now I have cut down on my salads and sometimes miss a meal if I feel too full. I no longer fear to die. We all have to go sometime, and I know I will not die in agony, as so many people I know have. I hope these words will help others and save another unnecessary operation. 
When will doctors realise that a natural food diet is the answer and stop giving drugs and operations? Yours sincerely, Mr Charles Harris. If you have enjoyed Mrs Snook's story so far, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you could take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, I would appreciate it. If you would like to learn more, visit my website, gretapools.com, for my biography of Mrs Snook, which includes a gut cleanse diet, plus Mrs Snook's own writings. The links are on the episode's webpage. Mm-hmm.